We continue on our series of love sermons, uh, exploring today Paul's words uh, to the church in Corinth. Corinth was a, a densely populated seaport with diverse people from all over the world. Uh, and in the midst of all of these uh, issues uh, uh, that, that, that were there in, in that city, Paul was starting a new church made up of all these diverse people. So in 1 Corinthians, he talks a lot about love. And then uh, in, in 2 Corinthians, we continue to have him introducing himself to the congregation as he would go around to different cities. So listen for the word of the Lord as it comes to us from Paul's letters, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Listen for the word of the Lord. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Surely we do not need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you, do we? You yourselves are our letter, written on your hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter of Christ, prepared by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Our competence is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, chiseled in letters on stone tablets, came in glory so that the people of Israel could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory of his face, a glory now set aside, how much more will the ministry of the Spirit come in glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, there is much more does the ministry of justification abound in glory. Indeed, what once had glory has lost its glory because of a greater glory. Or for if what was set aside came through glory, much more has the permanent come in glory. Since then we have such a hope. We act with great boldness, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside, but their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses has read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, the Spirit. 
The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the midst of our sermon series on love, last week we explored uh, something of a Bible dictionary of, uh, of love words in the Bible. But even then we did not cover them all, uh, but rather I wanted to highlight and say, look at all these different dimensions of love that reflect uh, the, the, the complexity, the wonder of God to encounter us in our different situations of life in ways that truly touch us with that love and transform us. God is love in all sorts of different ways and our experiences uh, reflect that, that God shines through to us. Paul is talking in this passage extensively about Moses. Um, And and in that, when he refers to Moses, you have to remember the whole uh, arc of Moses' life, that that Moses began uh, his his, uh, theological life, per se, uh, on the mountaintop when he went up to see the burning bush. Uh, He saw this bush, he went up, and, and what he discovered was that this bush was on fire, but it was not consumed. And he hears this voice saying to him, Moses, take off your shoes. Take off your shoes, because you are standing on holy ground. It was the beginning of a message, a message uh, of this fire radiating from this bush uh, that, 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 that really, in some ways, became an image that the people of Israel embraced for themselves. Because when they spent 40 years in the wilderness, in all these harrowing experiences, they felt like there was this fire, but it was not consuming them. Rather, they became a people on fire, not slaves any longer. It took them 40 years to become people on fire for this God who had set them free. Moses had spent 40 years, I'm sorry, 40 days up on the mountaintop carving uh, the, the, the words of God onto stone tablets. Uh, and, and because he had encountered God so closely, uh, his face began to glow. And when he came down off the mountaintop, uh, his, his, his body had been shaped by the presence of God and the glow continued. And in theological terms, when the people of Israel saw Moses' face glowing in this strange way, it freaked them out, <laughs> right? It was so different. It was the presence of God that had shaped Moses. Moses is referring to that, uh, that story because the people of Israel, um, because they were experiencing the awe of the presence of God, awe, the awe of God that both attracts us uh, and, and for the wonder of it all, and yet at the same time is so uh, inscrutable and, uh, and unique that it also is something that makes us draw back from it. So they made Moses put a veil over his face whenever he went out in public. Uh, so they didn't get too close to this God who might change them too much too fast. It was so powerful. 
That's what Moses is talking about in this book in Corinthians, the second, uh, uh, second letter to Corinthians. And in that letter, in the, just in the small passage we read this morning, the word glory appears 13 times. 13 times, which is really not surprising because the word glory in the Bible shows up 606 times. 376 in the Hebrew, 230, uh, 230 in the New Testament. Glory is a word we probably ought to know, but I'm not sure that we have a working definition that we carry around in our heads, which is part of what I'm always looking for, a faith that we can take with us on the road. Um, and, I, and, and I discovered one a few years ago, Yale theologian Nicholas Voltersdorf uh, spoke at my church and he talked about the glory of God and he said that his definition of glory was radiant excellence. And I thought, yeah, radiant excellence. There is something about God that shines forth in radiance and it has this transcendent excellence associated with us of, of light and life and, and uh, that brilliant light shining. It's like the fire in the burning bush, but it carries with us. It's, it's mysterious, it's transcendent, it's close, it's imminent, and yet it's something that evokes awe and, and makes us not want to get too close. And it, if you stay with the dwelling on that thought, if you hold that in your mind, you explore the experience of the glory of God, well, like Moses, it changes you. It puts a different look on your face. There's, I study character a lot in my work on ethics, and, and I've come to believe uh, that, that we become what we behold. We become what we behold. What you look at and think about uh, uh, often is something that shapes your imagination and shapes your affect and your expectations. Therefore, be careful what you watch on Netflix, right? We become what we behold. We spend time in worship trying to seek that, that radiant excellence, the glory of God that may just surprise us and show up here and there, now and then, from time to time. And it shapes us. The wonder, the mystery, the beauty, the depth, the light, the life. That sense of glory is, is something that invites us and intrigues us and attracts us uh, and, 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 and it shapes us. Moses wrote that the words of God written in stone uh, were, were, were part of the story of Israel. And whenever I go to a church, I'm, uh, I look around uh, to see what's written in stone. <laughs> um, and this comes out of Vanderbilt Divinity School. Uh, part of my days there, there was a little stone off, off the entranceway, and, and it said in Latin, Scala Prophetorum, School of the Prophets. All right. Uh, and uh, the story of the Divinity School was Martin Luther King had encouraged James Lawson to come and study there. 
And he did. Uh, King wanted him in the South because, uh, because this guy really understood the nonviolent transformation that, that he wanted to have happen. But when, when Lawson was trying to desegregate like the lunch counters and, and different areas across the South, the, the, the newspaper editor took great offense at this and, and said this wasn't worthy of a Vanderbilt Divinity uh, student. And he encouraged the chancellor publicly to, 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 to boot this guy out of school and the chancellor bent to public opinion and kicked him out of school at which point half of the divinity school faculty resigned en masse <laughs> and the students uh, began protests that put so much pressure on the chancellor that he realized his moral mistake and he reinstated him school of the prophets it was written in stone. It's still there today to remind them of who they are. When I came to this church, it was that first week I remember seeing uh, this, this carving in stone in your church building here that starts with the love of God and goes on to the love of neighbor. And I think that really does reflect the, the, what's written in stone in the minds and imaginations of this congregation. This is a loving congregation. And, and it may look imposing on the outside, but, but usually, and at our best, when somebody walks in the door, uh, they feel that love. And that's something that we're trying to work on and take that strength and make it even stronger with the small groups um, because that, that, that love needs to be written on our minds, our hearts, and our actions. Moses wrote words in stone, but Paul is doing something controversial. Controversial and really new. He takes that ancient story of Moses carving in stone and he says, he says look, that's got a due date on it. The label says it's past due. It's time to take the, the tradition and transform it um, because it's not just about the creation or the covenant or the cooperation of people with God. He, Paul says it again and again, glory, 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 13 times, but he redefines what glory means. Glory is about the cross of Christ. Gro glory is about the love that is so free that it can give it all. Glory, that radiant excellence revealed in the love of Jesus Christ, that, that human being that lived every step of his life with love, not an easy love, sometimes a challenging love, and that love shaped his followers a transformative love that redefined reality and what was possible for them. And that's what Paul redefines in this letter there. It's the cross, the resurrection, the love of God that will not give up on a world that is broken. So the scripture and Paul invite us to keep on looking towards that glory. Not, not, not the ancient vision, but Paul says, look for the glory of Jesus Christ, of the love that has been set free in you, among you, on your hearts. We become, Paul says, messengers to the world. We become Christ's love letter 
to the world, written on our hearts. Mother Teresa talked about this. Uh, You you remember Mother Teresa, one of the most well-known saints of the modern world, who worked in the slums of Calcutta. She was interviewed one time and was asked to, to talk about her daily schedule. And she said, well, I get up at four in the morning to pray. And then she said, she and the other sisters of the order that she established, we pray all day through our work, our work with the undesirables, the, 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 the dying people in the gutters, the, the crippled, the mentally ill, the unwanted, the unliked, the unloved. She said, they are Jesus in disguise. And I, she said, I have the opportunity to be 24 hours a day with Jesus. She was asked by the interviewer in this radio interview if she had any special gifts. And she said, I'm like a little pencil in the hand of God as he writes a love letter to the world. Can you see it? The radiant excellence of this woman who lived a sacrificial life that God's love might be shared, written on the heart, written on the life, written on the world. You know, I I love studying scripture and this passage in particular is one that's interesting to me because um, it really does have something of a dialogue going back and forth between the Old Testament and the New and in particular between this this image of of what's written in stone and what's written uh, on the the heart. Uh, And I I think that that dialogue is fascinating because sometimes things really do need to be written in stone because it shapes our imagination and and it sets it free. And I was thinking about that and then it it brought to mind, so I free associate sometimes, okay, you know that. Uh, And I thought about this, this time when I was about nine years old, my father took my brother and I to visit uh, some cousins of his, some, some uh, much older uh, step cousins. Uh, uh, to a nine-year-old, they looked about 200 years old, uh, but they delighted us. Uh, because here were these uh, older women who were artists. And they worked in stone, creating artwork from polished stones, jewelry, and it was so beautiful. Uh, And they talked about the process. They showed us how they did it. Uh, They they would take these rocks, these rocks that were just, I mean, the kind of stuff you'd uh, probably put out in the driveway as a a useless old stone, but they would take these rocks and put them in the tumbler, and they, they would put in some sand, and then they'd baptize it with some water and turn it on. And it didn't take a week or two weeks or three weeks. It took a month or two months before these ordinary dull rocks that you'd just throw away turned into the gems that they were. One stone by itself, well, it just wouldn't have worked. It took a whole bunch of stones and some irritating sand, 
along with that baptismal water to, to, to make it transform, right? And I thought, you know, that's really like the church in some ways, isn't it? That, that here we come to the church and none of us is perfect. Um, we've got our rough edges and, and uh, harsh spots, and, uh, but, but, but we come together in the church and in, in that covenant community that we have over the years, we bump up against one another and we challenge one another and we irritate one another and, 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 and over time, God polishes us until like those stones, there's a luster that comes. There's a, a light that seems to shine in each personality, in each one, and each one is valuable and beautiful. God calls us to commit to being in the tumbler together of the church. And sometimes I think my role in the church is to be one of the rocks. Uh, but then I think, nah, I'm a pastor. I'm here for a shorter time than everybody else. I have a short-term role. I think that means that I'm the sand. I'm the irritant in the mix. <laughs> and I... Try to help smooth things out, not for the short term, but for the long term, to help bring out the luster in the church. And I want to apologize because um, I, I see it over the 42 years of my ministry, and I see it uh, here that I may not have been irritating enough. Now, don't get me wrong, I think there's some wonderful things that have been polished and are absolutely wonderful here. The Sunday school is growing. It is amazing to see a Sunday school that is bigger now than before COVID. There's hardly any church that can say that, but you can say it here because of the good work you have put in. Vacation Bible School had 135 kids this, this year, and we've got a goal of 200 next year. That's astounding to see that kind of great work going. And I just see the, the polish that Sarah Ford's putting on that. It's, as she and the, and the committee of, of, of all the volunteers in the church, they really have gotten that going. And Pastor Kelsey is doing this wonderful job with the youth group um, to, to bless them, to care for them, to love for them and that youth group is growing and that is just absolutely wonderful and something to be celebrated and the mission activities pastor edwin and the outreach and mission committee have been working with all these different groups in in pontiac and in the larger community there and we gathered 25 of those mission partners together and 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 said give us some feedback and they said keep on doing what you're doing because you're bringing us together and nobody else can do that but the Kirk. So you are part of a transformative uh, a dynamic that's going on because of the love that you're sharing in your mission work, and you're doing far more than is possible just by the Kirk taking care of individuals alone because you are transforming these groups to work more powerfully together. Uh, and the vision process. You've done a wonderful job with the vision process for where you go next. I think the, the vision statement that you did for the Presbytery is about the best I've ever seen. And you did it, not me. But in our time of studying the church, uh, through our consultant, we realized there's one area that is a, uh, a problem. 
and it's creating a rough spot for all the other areas. Um, and I want to say it's my job to talk about this, and I haven't talked about it enough, and I'm sorry. I apologize. I will try to do better. You see, other churches give better than the congregation of this, that this church does financially overall. Um, and that is measured by a full percentage point of, of income uh, that is higher in other churches than in the Kirk. I'm not sure why that is the case. It may be because some people think the endowment that we have here will solve all our problems. We have a wonderful endowment here, but an, an endowment is like uh, the golden goose. You don't kill the golden goose or you lose out long term. So the trustees are doing a marvelous job of sharing resources with the church in a responsible way, but they're doing all that they can and they can't do any more with, without, uh, without harming future generations. Um, and that means it's up to us. Uh, it's up to us to decide that um, that love of God is inspired in us for the church and through the church to do these marvelous things powerfully. Uh, if we don't significantly address this issue, next year we're gonna have some major problems and we're gonna have to cut back in some major ways and it's gonna be painful. But we have time now to stop that, to turn that around and, and to move forward in ways um, so I will seek to be clear in my ask of you this year. Um, in a couple weeks, uh, you will get a love letter from me uh, because I want you to feel the love of God that is empowered when you give through the church because you know you're part of God's work in a congregation that never is perfect, no congregation is perfect, but this one is so powerful in the love that it's able to share as it shapes lives of children and youth and all of us, as well as shaping the outside community. I will send you that love letter and I will ask you to pray about it and respond with a pledge card. Um, but, but my focus on this whole fall is, is thinking about the love of God the radiant excellence of God that shapes our lives as we know that we are loved. That when we come together and, and when, when, we, when we consider God's presence, we think about the wonder, the mystery, the depth, the beauty, the light, the life, the love that we see in Jesus Christ. This kind of love, what reshapes us, it reshapes our church, it reshapes the world. And it comes from that love of God and love of neighbor. I'll close uh, with just one more story. Uh, it was at a different church. You know, I've served so many different churches at, at my class reunion last month. Uh, somebody uh, wondered if I'd been in the witness protection program. Um, <clears throat> Uh, but, uh, you know, at, at one church, uh, the, the, there, there was a woman at, at, before worship who came rolling up to me in her wheelchair with a smile on her face, and she said, Doctor, I'd like to talk with you for a minute after worship. And I said, sure. 
Uh, and I thought she was going to ask me for bus money because I knew she took a couple buses to get to church in her wheelchair. And, 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 and I knew that uh, there were lots of people that asked me for bus money. That's just how it was in that church. But, but I was wrong. When we talked after worship, and it was just she and I in the sanctuary, I'm sitting on a pew, she's sitting in the wheelchair, and, and she said, I have been so blessed in my life. It's really important in my relationship with God that I tithe. You know that biblical tithe where you give 10%? There's people that really do that. She's one of them. She says, it's really important for my relationship with God that I tithe. But I can't afford to do that with the rent increase I've gotten and where I have to live right now. But if I move to a poorer part of town with cheaper rent, I can make the tithe. My son thinks that moving there is too dangerous, that part of town, it's too dangerous. But this is really important to my faith. Pastor, what do you think I should do? And I won't tell you what I said, <laughs> but I will tell you what I wanted to do. I wanted to take off my shoes I wanted to take off my shoes because I was standing on holy ground in her presence. The light, the life, the joy, the love of God and neighbor, it radiated from her. The light of Christ's sacrificial love was burning in her face, in her heart, in her being a love letter from God, right there, radiant, glory, amen.